0: Uh, we come to one of the most renowned stories this morning in the entire Bible. Um, one, I think, could argue that it's perhaps one of the most memorable stories maybe in, in human history. Um, if uh, if little Greek boys grew up uh, in the, the B.C. era listening to the great story of Hector and um, Achilles and um, Achilles' victory over the mighty Hector, um, Hebrew boys and Jewish boys, and many of us in Sunday school heard the story over and over again between the teenager by the name of David and the mammoth beast by the name of, of Goliath. And uh, the, only the story, the Hebrew story, of course, is true. It's, it's no myth, and it has taken root in so many different ways in our culture, paintings and movies and uh, the name David and Goliath has become an idiom and it's made its way into literature, and, and so it's a it's a it's a really well-known story. And even for people who have never read the Bible, almost everybody that I know has heard the name David and Goliath and the basic idea as to what it means. But therein lies the challenge. I came to First Samuel 17, and I thought everybody knows this story. You know, most of you do. You've heard it when you've uh, in through Sunday school and so forth. And if you have never heard it, then well, then you have kind of a little bit of a treat here. Um, but I was tempted at one point to say, well, they know the story, so let's focus on the application. But I have reflected on the importance and and, and the power of stories uh, over my life, and I realized that one of the reasons that we often tell the same stories over and over and over again, especially as husbands, you know, wives roll the eyes because we're with our friends and we tell the same stupid stories every time, is because we relive the experience in the telling of the story. That is, it draws us into the story by way of experience in a way that's simply talking about Uh, truth and propositional ways don't in other words part of the transforming effect of a story is that draws us into the experience and so um I I want to just tell it again but with its own I don't know twisted Dan Deckard flavor maybe and um and in hopes that even those of you who have have heard it before would might find yourself re-experiencing um the the power of of the story in your own life and speaking to you in your situation Um, so that's what I, what I want, to, want to do this morning, but I want to enter into it by way of kind of uh, backing away and looking at the story through the grand purpose of God in history. Because when I heard the story as a kid, it was disconnected, it was a great story, but I didn't understand how it fit into the overarching purpose of God in the Bible. And, and are, there are many ways of, of distilling down what is God's main purpose, like why? What is God doing in human history through all of its right and left turns and the chaos and in the wonderful stories of salvation? What is he doing? And um, there are different ways of basically saying the same thing, but, but one of the verses in Scripture that I think captures the mission statement of God in history is found in um, uh, Psalm 46. And you don't have to turn there because I'm going to um, show it to you here in a second. And I just want you to keep this in mind as we look at the David story of, of, of David and Goliath. Um, Psalm 46 is one of the ones that that I learned by singing, and and it starts off, you know, God is our refuge and strength, the very help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way and the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. The idea is God is our refuge and strength. And the only place in Psalm 46 where we hear God's voice speak in the first person is verse 10. And there, I think God declares his mission statement for all things, what he's doing. And it's not just his mission statement. But for those of us who are supposed to be followers and lovers of who He is, it's ours as well. And God speaks in the first person—the only time He does in the psalm—and He says, "Be still." He's speaking to His people: "Be still. Be at rest. Be at peace." Um, And know, know something vital to all of life: know that I, I am God. I I preside. I, I sit on the throne. I rule. I started this thing. I will bring this thing to a close. I am the one who's making all things new. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. Be still and know that I am God. And then he declares his mission, his purpose. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, let me just say what that doesn't say. You notice there's no contingency. There is no possibility in those two declarations. God doesn't say, I might be Exalted among the nations, if everything goes my way, nor does he say, I hope to be exalted in the earth. What is stated here is a divine certainty. It's impossible for it not to happen. He says, I will. It's divine determination telling us that when history is brought to its final resolve, when that final chord of the great symphony of human history hits that perfect chord of peace and everything is perfectly harmonized, then God will, in all of his wisdom, his power, his sovereignty, his love, and his grace, will be held in astonished awe by all the nations. Even those who have never believed in him will bow and acknowledge that there is no one like him. That is God's purpose in history, to exalt his name. At the end of history, he's the Everest that's left standing, and everybody surrounding him saying, wow. That's his purpose. That's the purpose that you find from beginning to the end of the Bible, for God to glorify his holy name. But this story, backing now into this event, David versus Goliath, shows us how God chooses to do that, and the kind of person through whom he does it. How God exalts his holy name. And the kind of person through whom he exalts his name. Those two things. Now, this, this story is 58 verses long. So I'm going to summarize most of it and just kind of come down on a couple of key points. Um, it opens up, as, as you might expect, with the Philistines on the march, the perennial enemy of the Jewish people, always the Philistines. The name Palestine actually originates from the word Philistine. sounds very similar. Uh, beginning in chapter 17, we find that they cross the border of Israel yet again, and they set up camp in the Valley of Elah. And, um, and I think, this is reading a bit between the lines, but I think part of the reason why they cross the border and advance into attack position is because they want to unsheath. A secret weapon that has been forged over the years. So, because of the ploy that takes place later, calling out, um, you know, hey, let's two of us duel it out. And the one who wins uh, puts the others in servitude. So I, reading between the lines, I think they had a secret weapon that they wanted to unleash. So they crossed the border into Israel. King Saul is a good, good king. Wood which musters his troops, and he heads down into the Valley of Elah too. And the text tells us that the one army, the Israelite army, was on the eastern side on a mountain, and then there was a valley, and on the other side, the western side, was the, was the Philistine armies. And then through the ranks, unbeknownst to the people of Israel, as I, I, I said, I think this is kind of the secret weapon, unsheathed, marches this monster of a man by the name of, of Goliath. And, um, and he's called a champion. Uh, and later, we're told that he has been trained in the art of war since he was a youth. In other words, he's kind of a golden, gold medalist of, of personal military combat. And it's interesting, the Bible doesn't oftentimes give what we call thick descriptions, but it takes the time to give a thick description as to this person by the name of Goliath. Now, Forgive me for telling you what you may already know, but every time I read the proportions of this particular man, I just, again, stand in awe that someone could actually be so big and so strong. As I read it, I thought, man, this is kind of like Jason Bourne and Rambo and Terminator all rolled into one, only a lot bigger, maybe on steroids. And um, so we get this description of this guy, and and, uh, it says that he was basically, when converted into feet, is like nine feet, nine inches tall. Nine feet, nine inches tall. I did a little checking. You know, the tallest man in recorded history where his measure has been irrefutably um, substantiated is eight foot 11, a man by the name of Robert Wadlow. You can see a picture of him online. He's a really tall, slender guy. Doesn't look like, he looks like he'd get blown over in a windstorm. Um, Eight feet, 11 inches tall. Now, um, Goliath was another 10 inches on top of that. I did something kind of stupid yesterday. I I went into the drawer and I picked up a measuring tape and I measured myself from my feet flat-footed to the very top of my finger. And it's exactly eight feet. I'm doing this because I want you to feel proportions. You have to add another 21 inches onto the top of my hand and that's where the top of his head would be. Almost two more feet. Which means he could easily reach up and grab these speakers. Um... That's a big dude. That is our, when, when you think Goliath, I want you to think of just, just imagine him grabbing these, these speakers right here and lifting them down. It goes on to, to, to tell us that he wore a, a coat of mail, a, a breastplate of sorts, that weighed, again, converting about 130 pounds. That's a, like an average woman on his chest, you know, 130 pounds. That it, the spear that he held um, was like into a beam, not your normal spear, um, it was probably custom-made in, in, you know, Philistia, with a spearhead that weighed um, the average weight of a bowling ball. Uh, any of you bowl here? Uh, I've bowled, and I've actually hucked a bowling ball before, and I have threw it off a three-foot, uh, three-story building, and it probably went 20 feet, and that was with a nice stiff wind behind me. Can you imagine hucking a bowling ball downrange at the enemy with accuracy? In other words, what you're supposed to picture in your mind is not like a Robert Wadlow who could be blown over in a windstorm as thin. This guy actually had the strength to match his size. So he says he's menacing. We might call him a beast or a monster. And that's what marched out onto the field. No one's ever seen anything like it. Um, the Incredible Hulk kind of person. Well, his, um, in addition to his size, we get a sense of the hatred and the venom that he had for for the people of Israel and the people of, of, of God. Because day after day, the text tells us later on, for 40, 40 days, um, he came out and he defied, which a very, is a very strong derisive word, um, denying, condemning, showing contempt, mocking the people of Israel and the God of the people of Israel. We read in verse 10, and the, and the, and the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me uh, a man that we may fight together. Um, he constantly came out and he defied the armies of Israel. Now, th- this isn't just, when we read Israel, this isn't just like a, like a Italy or Brazil or some other nation. When we read the word Israel, you got to recognize, we're talking about God's chosen people. This is the one God said, I am going to, you're going to be my treasured possession um, you're my people. I love you with a love that is steadfast. I, I promise myself to you, if you trust in me, I will protect you. I will fight your battles. And through history, God had shown that to be true. He completely crushed the, 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 the Pharaoh's armies. You read about that in Exodus. Um, he's the one who, Genesis 1, created all things. Like when we read Israel, Israel is a very special nation. So when this giant comes out and I defy the armies of Israel... It's not just a statement that defies defies a nation, but the God who owns that nation. So how do the people of God respond? And more importantly, her king. It says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, you know, seeing his massive, impressive size, um, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were panic-stricken. They were paralyzed. I mean, the biggest man that that we know of has ever lived just walked out onto the field and he's trained. They were greatly afraid. But notice that the text includes Saul specifically as one of those men who is with those who are greatly afraid. The king of Israel. Now, many of us have been trained to to, uh, understand the story of David and Goliath as a story primarily about David and Goliath. And I think... Um, it is about David and Goliath, but it's, it's more importantly about David and Saul. That is, there is a contrast being made in this text to show two different colors of two different kings in the middle of, a, of a, what I've called a crucible. And Marine boot camp, I don't know if they still do this, but they have this thing called the crucible, where young Marines are forced into this kind of heavy test where they march with a pack for I don't know how many miles filled with stuff to see if they can make it. It's a severe test. Really, when you think about it and back away, this giant is a test. He's a crucible, which will test the hearts of two different kings. Heart of Saul, the reigning king, and the heart of David, the soon-to-be future king. And here we find that Saul... Facing the crucible of this giant, he is greatly afraid, and the text indicates that they pulled away from battle and didn't go into battle. That is, what's in his heart is fear. What's in his heart and fear. and keep in mind, by the way, the one in the Israelite army who is head and shoulders above everybody else is who? King Saul. He's the tallest man in Israel. We're told earlier in 1 Samuel that he also and his son Jonathan are the only ones that own weapons. Swords, spears, and armor. And he's someone who's experienced battle over and over again, and he's seen God's grace at work. The one person on the battlefield who stood any semblance of a chance against this giant was the king himself. But we find him greatly afraid and paralyzed, despite the fact that this giant comes out and defies the people and the God of Israel who created all things. Well, that's kind of scene one. It ends with Saul the king in the crucible, um, afraid and um, unable to act, to take initiative. Well, the camera, beginning in verse 12, pans to a completely different scene, back up into to Bethlehem, where we meet a teenage boy by the name of David. Most people think he's between the ages of 14 and 17. So let's just say he's in his mid-teens. Now, I'd love to just have someone who's 15 stand up, but I'm not going to call anybody out. You've got to kind of, so you gotta remember the guy who's holding the speakers <laughs> and then a 15-year-old, you know. Tony, some time ago, said, two weeks ago, said that we shouldn't despise youth. Well, this is an example of not despising youth either because God's going to do an amazing thing through this... this um, mid-teenage young boy. Well, this, this, this young boy by the name of David has three brothers who were enlisted in Saul's army. And so his father, in a work of providence, God is moving this perfectly along. He's, he's moving David to his public debut, out onto the battlefield in, into public. In an act of providence, uh, his father Jesse says, hey David, I want you to take some food down to your older brothers, down to the battle lines. And so he does. It's about 12 miles west of, 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 of Bethlehem. And so David takes an animal, takes some food and heads down there. And it just so happens when he arrives, the people of Israel, the army of Israel is moving forward, forward back into battle position. And just at the right time. And it says that he basically left the, the baggage there and he ran to the front of the, of, the, of the ranks just in time. Just in time so he could hear the words of Goliath. And some of my favorite words in this um, this section, or the last four words of, of verse 23. I'll kind of back up. It says, As he talked with them, behold, a champion, uh, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. You know, over and over again, he kept doing the same thing. And it says, And David heard him. And it's the first time he's hearing, what did this guy just say? And it's, it's these words that set him in motion. And a, and a whole series of conversations begin to ensue, initiated by David. And it gives us a clear sense that he wasn't afraid of this guy. He was incensed and outraged and indignant that someone would have the gall to actually do that to the armies of God's precious people. So we hear him saying, who is this? And you can kind of sense the disgust. Uh, who is this uh, um, uncircumcised Philistine, this, this dog, um, that he should defy the armies of the living God? Like, who does he really think he is to do this? I'm surprised lightning doesn't just completely incinerate him right now. Who's the guy doing this? Outraged, incensed, as if the words of defiance hit something sacred in David's soul and set in motion a determination to do something about it. You know what it reminds me of? Like that, that sacred touching his soul where it shouldn't be touched—is—is uh, is junior high playground. Two boys on the playground, and and when you're that age, you know you can say a lot of stuff about each other and not get in a fight. You know, you're skinny, so what? Uh, you're not skinny. You're fat. Well, you're ugly. Well, you—you know, my dad's bigger than your dad. And, well, no, my dad's bigger than your dad. But don't ever bring up the mama. The sacred relationship between a boy and his mom is one of those things that has caused fights and bloody noses, at least in my experience. It's like it's like going way beyond the triple dog dare to, uh, to, did you just say something about my mom? It doesn't make a difference how small you are and how big the other kid is. It is going to unleash a violent side because there's something precious about a mom. And I just, I, I picture that. If David hearing these words and going, did you? What did he say? Did he just defy the armies of Yahweh? As if something touched that sacred place in his soul that revered and awed and was astonished by all that God was. And he's thinking, who is this guy? Well, it sets him in motion. And and again, a flurry of conversations happen and uh, David's older brother, Eliab, uh, gets a wind of it. And as a result, he basically rebukes him, saying, you know what? My, my paraphrase, get lost. You know, where are your little sheep that you're taking care of? This is man business, not boy business. Get back up to the sheep. And so his brother rebukes him. But it doesn't even one bit squelch David's determination to do something about this because he feels something deep in his soul about the Lord and what this man's doing to the armies of Israel. So he's unsquelched by the rebuke of his brother. Um, Eventually, King Saul gets wind of this David kid who's, who's, uh, you know, asking all these questions. And and so he brings him in. It says, verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. (laughs) Let no man's heart. Everyone's heart was failing him. No one's willing to stand up and meet this guy. And this is, again, reading between the lines. I've often wondered, where was Jonathan in all this? If you've been following, Jonathan is a man of faith and a man of courage. Took down a whole garrison of Philistines all by himself with his armor-bearer. Where was he? Well, we meet him at the very beginning of chapter 18, right after the battle's over. So I'm kind of assuming he was there too, and he was afraid. There's not a single person whose heart has not failed except one, and he happens to be a teenager. And Saul goes on to tell, well, after he said... um, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, me, will go and fight this Philistine. You can sense the disgust. Doesn't even use his name. Just this Philistine. Verse 33. And Saul said to David, You were not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth. Like, but a boy. But a teenager. And he has been a man of war from his youth. So, David is determined after he hears what he hears. He is... Opposed by his brother, it doesn't squelch him. He is now opposed by the king. And that too doesn't squelch his determination to do something about it. So he responds, and he responds to King Saul by confessing and drawing attention to his faith in how God has worked in his experience. And many of you are familiar with this, and there there is a lesson to be drawn from this. But David argues his point. He says, "Um, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a tiger or a bear, oh my, I was just, <laughs> a lion or a bear, just lions and bears here, um, he, and, and took the lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be uh, just like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord, now this is his faith. He knew in all of these experiences of his life, it wasn't his strength that delivered um, his life or the lamb from the, the paw, the lion, the bear. For he says, the Lord, whenever you see it capitalized like this, for those of you who aren't so associated with the Bible translations, that is the sacred name of Yahweh, the I am. It's a very specific covenant name. The Lord, my God, Yahweh, who I heard him just defy, um, Who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And David's not trying to stack up his achievements before Saul. He's trying to show um, how God in his grace has continued to work as David trusted him in each of these experiences while he was a shepherd. You know, it's interesting to me that. David's prior experience of God's grace in his life, while he was a menial shepherd, mattered. As as if God was placing little crucibles in his life. Lion, what am I going to do? They have real teeth, they have real claws. And it's coming after my sheep, and I told my dad I'd take care of the sheep. What am I going to do? And in those moments, he chose to trust in the delivering power of God and act in that delivering power power or faith in that delivering power and he went after a lion and saw how God's power moved in and through his faith. And God brings another crucible up there and, and the bottom line is, is that God was working in this man's life, building his boy's life before he ever entered the battlefield. In other words, it's not as if David ran onto this battlefield and um, spontaneously combusted with real faith. He it, it didn't. All the series of experiences prior to that, where he chose to trust God and his delivering power, prepared him not only for this event, but to be king. And that that raises an interesting, for me, insight in life. Sometimes we think that the menial tasks we do and the various conflicts that God brings in while we do those menial tasks, financial conflict, relational conflict, you name it, has no purpose. But in fact, it does have a purpose. In the same way, lions and tigers and bears had purpose in his life. They were opportunities to trust the Lord and to see grace abound. And that's true for all of us. Instead of seeing these conflicts that emerge by the throne, by the will of the throne, as mere unfortunate conflicts, to recognize the Lord is giving me opportunities to learn what David had to do when he was, he was trying to corral a bunch of bleeding sheep. He wants to teach me faith and how to trust him. Well, that, that's how God worked in his life. And, and he said, this is how God's grace has worked. And I've seen him deliver because I trust him. And, uh, and Saul concedes. He acquiesces and he sends a teenager out to do the job he pos- probably should have done himself. And of course the text tells us that he tried to help him out by putting some armor, oversized heavy armor on top of teenage David, give him a sword and a spear and of course too heavy for him and also David wasn't used to it. And you know what? He didn't need any help. So he took what he was used to. He says just a shepherd's staff and a sling and picked himself up five smooth stones and he walked onto the battlefield with nothing really more than that. And we're told that that Goliath moved out, the big hulk of a man. And he comes out onto the battlefield and he sees David and his response is utter and complete disgust, as you might expect. Verse 42 says, and when the Philistine uh, looked and saw David, he disdained him. Like this is a complete insult. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now it's a, divine theological issue. How powerful would the gods of, 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 of Goliath be in cursing this chosen son of God named David? Verse 44, the Philistines said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. The, the scene would have been comical to say the least. As I said, he's disgusted. It's like, I expect the best of the Jewish champions and you send me yentl. <laughs> you know? You haven't seen yet, they'll have you? <laughs> a little Jewish boy you can picture in Jewish garbage. Like, you've got to be kidding me. But the next part, and by the way, we know the end of the story, so, so we just kind of take it for granted what others were thinking around and what we'd be thinking. But you know what? If you and I were gambling people, <laughs> I don't know if you're a gambling person or not, but uh, if we were gambling people and we didn't know the end of the story, no one would have betted on David. It's, it's Yentl versus the Incredible Hulk on steroids. It's just, um, it defies all worldly possibilities and logic. It's a no-win situation. But in the heart of David is, is, is a different principle, a different logic, a different truth to live by. He sees things differently. And this, this story touches once again on one of the themes that winds its way through that that the people who doubt the Lord are oftentimes one who see things with their physical eyes, assess, and calculate based upon human convention. David doesn't see things that way. He operates on a different principle, a principle called faith, where he sees, if I may, who the real giant on the field is. And it's not this nine-foot, nine-inch man. Someone much larger is on the field of battle with him. And we get the sense of this when David gives his speech, and it is the most important part of the entire story because this is the principled operating principle of his life, and it ought to be the operating principle of you and me who profess to know the same God he knew and trusted. David responds to the Philistine You come to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a javelin, those are his weapons. But I come to you in the name, and this is really, when it comes right down to it, really the only weapon he really has. I come to you in the name of the, there's the sacred name again, Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You defied him, not me. This day the Lord, specific name, will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. PG-13 maybe. (laughs) And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day. He's confident not just he's bringing down the giant, but the entire Philistine army. This day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. If the central purpose of God in all of history is, is that I will exalt, I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. If that's the central purpose and passion of God, then that is the same central purpose and passion of David right here. That all the earth may know. This tells us what's in, in his heart. One of the things that's in his heart is a is a is an intense passion. For the exaltation of the Lord's name. He knows on the battlefield, it's not just about his life or the life of the armies, but the Lord's name is at stake. And it's his reverence and his desire to see God's name lifted up and God's power displayed that sends him forward. A holy zeal for the name of the Lord. It's one of the reasons I think David has a heart like, like the Lord. The man after his own heart. Because he had the same central passion. I just want him to be lifted up. I want him to show who's boss on this, on this battlefield. That's my heart. And in addition to the zeal, it's wedded to this trust that's willing to throw itself completely, wholeheartedly into the hands of the Almighty, saying, take me out there and do whatever you can through my little sling and my stones. It's trust that the grace of God would show up. Trust that God was bigger than the giants. Trust that God would come through. Trust that his love was steadfast. Trust that he cared about his name and his people. So he runs out on the battlefield says that he quickly ran, after this. That, by the way, is the center of his heart: zeal and faith in action, that produce that kind of courage. It says he ran quickly into the battlefield. That's not. There's no timidity, no sense of hesitation. He runs, with nothing but sling and stone. Meanwhile, Goliath. The impression of the text says that it, you know he lumbered along because he's all this massive armament, um, head towards each other, and um, David, as you would. The thing is, begins to twirl his, his, his sling. That's all he's got. And if, he was, if, if it was Steven Spielberg was to do this, I think what he'd do at this point is he'd slow everything down in slow motion. And then he'd start to pan the crowds. Because one thing that you don't have is, what is the Philistine army doing? Well, this these two guys, I mean, as I said, it's beyond comedic to look at this massive giant, nine foot nine against this teenager without any armor or anything, just a, some stones. I, I would guess that as Spielberg panned over to the Philistine armies, they were probably laughing in and ridicule and, and, and cheering with Philistine beer. Like the, the, this is a foregone conclusion. This is so stupid. Like Yentl is out on the field against our giant. Meanwhile, Spielberg was to pan over to the, to the Israelite army. I think they were probably perfectly silent. Fully and completely confident that David was going to be literally ripped to shreds, limb from limb, a giant just crushing David like a bug. Silence and celebration. And David winds it up. And again, slow motion, it sizzles through the air. And I, I'm guessing that it would have been a thud heard on both sides. Philistines would grow silent. Jewish armies silent. What just happened? And then to watch him fall to his knees, onto his face, and to watch this teenage kid run up, no hesitation, reach down, grab his sword, cut off his head, and say, this is what the Lord did. And at that point, the scene would change. The Philistines began to fear and flee. Teenager. And the people of Israel no doubt would have shouted for joy, I can't believe that happened. And that's the sense of the story. I can't believe that happened. It's not supposed to happen. But it did because God's power touched down in that moment. And the writer of this chapter is careful enough to explain to us that David wasn't the hero of the story. It says So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. That's meant to be comical. With a sling and a stone. In the last part, there was no sword in the hand of David. Just wants to point out there was no professional military weaponry in this, man, this teenage boy's hands. He brought him down with sling and stone. And it wasn't because he got a lucky shot off. It wasn't because he majored in some kind of martial slingshot kind of thing. It's there's only one explanation for why that stone came out of the sling and hit him right in the forehead. And that was the Lord was all over that stone and directed it to its appointed end to bring down the enemy. The real hero of the story is, is the Lord working through this boy who had a zeal for the, for the glory of, of the Lord and also one who trusted that God was the biggest one on the battlefield. He has it covered. That the Lord ended up being the hero of the day. That was the heart of David. I just want to see God be the hero and see his name exalted. And the people of Israel chased the Philistines all the way back to their home cities, to the gates of their home cities. Now, now what, this, uh, what does this teach us? If we were to sum this up in kind of a practical theological point, what, what, what was the, the principle by which David lived and by which we who are called to the same purpose of exalting the name of Christ and trusting in the delivering power of his work. What does it teach us? I think it teaches us, again, as I said, how God chooses to exalt himself and through whom God exalts his name. One of the things, the the way God has chosen to exalt his holy name is by displaying the power of his salvation and deliverance. Saving. Here, that, there's no question. In the deliverance, God showed his power. But the person through whom God chose to deliver was a person whose heart was filled with a zeal for his glory and a trust in his grace. He knew God could do it. That's, that's, that's the kind of person that God is pleased to exalt his saving power through. Who have a genu- that sacred sense of, of who God is and that you love his holy name and your heart reacts when someone tries to defy it or, or deride it or, or in some way diminish it. There's a sense of it's, a, it's about the glory of God and it's about trusting that his grace uh, overcomes all obstacles. That's the kind of person whom God chooses to use. He d- is not pleased to show his saving power through cowards. And that has been true from the beginning. And though David's, David's uh, conquest was, was a, a one-time thing, the same principle held true when the son of David walked the earth. When Jesus stepped onto the battlefield of history and he faced the beast that he had to face of sin, death, and, and the evil one, He operated by the same principle. God was pleased in this Jewish carpenter, a man whose heart was filled with zeal for the glory of his father, and and a heart that trusted completely the power of his hand to save, so much so that he said, not my will, but your will be done in an act of trust, completely threw himself into the hands of his father. Same exact principle. Only, of course, the difference is that Jesus didn't win the war by living, as David did, but he won the war by dying. It's, uh, it's intriguing that um, the Jewish people of Jesus' day expected when they marched him into Jerusalem to, metaphorically speaking, wind up his, his sling and, and knock Rome to the ground. And Jesus could have came in to Jerusalem and, and exacted vengeance on his enemies, but you know what? No one would be left standing, not Jew not Greek, not Roman. Because according to the scriptures, we're all enemies of God because of our sin. So instead of killing the guilty, he died for the guilty. And in a crazy sort of way, just like on the battlefield with David, God wins the war through a crucified man. Just as crazy. And yet it was the event that we come to know how much God loves his enemies, us, us, how gracious he is to give us not just life but to give us himself and a new creation to call us sons and call us daughters the most amazing display of his wisdom his sovereign power and his grace right there in the son of David dying on a cross and rising again the principle though brothers and sisters is the same Jesus the God man who was zealous for the glory of the Lord and willing to wholly and completely trust um, in the power of grace and working in his life And you know, Jesus, while he won the war, he calls us into battle with himself. We're supposed to, you know, by the power of grace and by the power of the gospel, chase the enemies back to the gates of their their hometowns. And Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against a gospel-filled church. That's that's what the Christian church is supposed to be doing, is engaged in that as we savor Jesus, as we show his love, and as we speak his truth. To watch the enemy retreat, whether it's in life or in suffering or it's in death, is to watch God work. But it seems to me as we kind of look at these two kings facing the same crucible, both have to face the giant, Saul and David. Saul is a man who fears and therefore is not used. David, a man of simple but zealous faith. God brings about victory and delivers an entire nation through one boy. That pretty much provides a pretty good comparison for, or by which we can reflect on our own lives and ask ourselves the question. We serve the same purpose of exalting God, maybe not on a physical battlefield, but on the battlefield of, of life. Um, am I more like Saul? Or am I more like David? Am I living in fear? Or am I really living in faith that, that God is here and his grace prevails? Fear or faith? Like, which would you do if you were forced, forced to write down a name, Saul or David, on your life? And how you've acted and how you act when those different crucibles of testing come into your life. How is it that you respond? How would you, what, what name would you write? Saul or David? Saul, or David. Now, just my personal opinion, but it seems as if much of the church lives in timidity and fear. Fear of failure. Fear of what people will think. Fear of losing popularity. Fear of things costing you too much time. Fear of the moral chaos around us. Fearful of what's going to happen in Washington. Fearful of what will happen if the economy doesn't turn around. Fear, 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 fear. And it's paralyzing God's people. Living in the Saul domain of things. But to recognize that God has called his people not to live in timidity, but in the power of his spirit. We have the same spirit David had. And the only way to move from being a person of fear like Saul and a person of faith like David is believing the same thing David did about the nature of who God is. And it's summed up in one simple sentence in that speech. He knew what produced the courage. He knew the battle is the Lord's battle is, that that means it belongs to him. He commands it. He owns the beginning of it and the ending of it. He owns the outcome of it. That is, he he dominates every facet of the battle of life. And he believed it. And the key between living in fear and living in faith is for you to believe it too. And I'm not talking about singing about it or saying it with your lips. Talking about really believing that the battle, every battle, everything that happens in your life is his. He owns it. He, he dominates over it. He's, he's there with you. He's the hero in your battle. And it may not turn out how you wish it to, but to recognize that when it comes to the battle in and for marriage, like this is his battle. He, he has the shoulders to bear this, that when it comes to the battle for the souls of our children, this is his battle, not ultimately my battle. As we engage in, in the Moral conflict is recognize this is his battle, it's not my battle. When it comes to bad neighborhoods, this is not my battle, this is his battle. Every piece of your life is his. And to simply live in the reality of that truth and have that little banner tag statement over every experience of life. Here's the crucible, who's in charge? And with a zeal for his name and a trust in his power to march forward and say, I'm going to do what he's called me to do. Simply to believe that simple but profound truth. It is the Lord's. My life is the Lord's. My kids are the Lord's. My marriage is the Lord's. This church is the Lord's. Our society is the Lord's. The culture is the Lord's. It's his battle. And not just to say it, but to believe it. Brothers and sisters, I want to believe this truth. I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to us. And to know it in our hearts. Not just sing about it because it's a worship song. How great is our God. To feel it in every fiber of your being. And to know that in every circumstance, God is there. And to live in that truth. There would be a lot more courage. It's just, you know, one teenager, that's all it took. One teenager who believed. And it changed the outcome for a nation. One Savior believed and he paid for our sin. Same kind of faith. There's no magic formula. Do you simply believe it? In your situation where you're at right now in the crucibles you're experiencing. Will you take a moment and just ask the Lord, please, Lord, turn this truth into faith. And then I'll I'll pray. Lord, I simply ask that you'd enable us not to live by what we see with our physical eyes, but help us to live in the same manner that David did by your Holy Spirit to to trust that your power um, is supreme over all things and every intention of your heart is good and that you're with us in the valley of the shadow of death and you're with us on the top of a mountain singing for joy. And that wherever my brothers and sisters are in this room right here who are facing conflict, I just pray that you would shine a light into their souls and give them faith. Real faith. Not just spoken faith, but real heartfelt confidence in your power. And that they would love your name more than they love life itself. I pray this is his name. Amen. We're going to... Dan, I'll do do this real quick. Um, You know... Most of you know Ron Marlette, and we said we're going to take an offering. I'll make this really brief, but um, you know he came here back in 1998, and uh, I remember meeting him, and he told me about what he wanted to do, and I don't know that I believed that it was going to happen, but he had faith, and he came here, and you know you know what's happened? It's taken off like 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 crazy because he believed, and God's power has been shown, and and um, and now we have the 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 joy of being able to share in the ongoing um, ministry where lives are being reclaimed for the kingdom and watching God's, the glory of his name, the glory of his love. And so um, uh, the ushers are going to come forward in, uh, in just a second. And then, um, and so I just want to encourage you to give and uh, show our faith in, um, in the Lord by, by helping this amazing ministry that came really out of nothing because the Lord was in it. Because the battle for the mission is the Lord's. So guys, why don't you come on forward, and John, why don't you lead us in a final song? betcha. Well, after uh, Dan, Dan preached that message, I have the pleasure of reading it in the morning before you all get here. I thought, my goodness, it's time to celebrate. If the battle belongs to the Lord, that means we win. <laughs> and brothers and sisters, that is good news. So as that offering plate goes by, you stand and join us in this last song of celebration. Mm.